everybody, it's time for Game Changers with Butch Patrick. Butch. Oh. Yeah, I mean, raise the roof. Butch, you know, I was looking back at the thread, and we started to talk about this in two, at the beginning of 2018. And it, it took all this time and a pandemic for me to actually get you involved. The only yeah. thing that would have been better before is that you would have we would have been sitting in the same room. But yes. It's great to meet you. Well, people were talking about waiting till Halloween, and I said, no, we better do it now. <laughs> I, exactly. So, all, all right, so look, I have all my Halloween stuff. I have yeah. everything ready to go. You, you know, have, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's, you, you go. I was going to say Halloween, it's, it's funny, um, you know, the Munsters being 55 years old, and it's funny, back then Halloween was a one-night-a-year go out, trick-or-treat, come home with a bag of candy, go out again, get another bag of candy. Now it's a six-week juggernaut <laughs> holiday that next to Christmas, people spend hundreds, the average person spends well over $100 on Halloween. It's crazy. So is so Halloween, though, I would imagine is still a pretty big holiday for you because that has to be like Munster's craziness. Yeah, it does. I've been, uh, you know, a long time ago when the, um, the Comic-Cons first started up in the mid-'80s, early-'80s, uh -huh. I, um, because the Munsters is a very family friendly, uh, multi-generational show and it features monsters, even though we were lovable monsters and it features a lot of toys and memorabilia and special effects. It was, uh, the, the promoters always enjoyed having the Munsters, the cast, the cars, anything to do with the Munsters at their booth because it was good for business, good for right. attendance. And I continue to do that today. So... <laughs> so back then, when you were a monster and it was Halloween, I can't even imagine what the craziness was in your life then. You know, my thing for Halloween, I had this routine, and I, and I didn't take advantage of any of the stuff at the studios, and I didn't go up to Mike Westmore and say, make me up. My big thing on Halloween was about three hours before dark, I would go rummaging around in the garage and figure out some costume at the last minute. Because so you wouldn't be, so you weren't Eddie Munster on no, Halloween. No, no, that was my, that's my job. No, I would go out and if it, whatever, whatever was on my mind at the time, or whatever like was ha was happening uh, in TV or movies, I would right. go out and uh, whip up something by myself and create something at the last minute in the last few hours out of uh, the junk in the garage, and I got pretty good at it. That's so fun. So, it, so uh, Halloween was my favorite holiday. It's right around my birthday. Did you love Halloween? Okay, so pre-Munsters, you, you yep. started acting very, very young. We're going to talk about that. But pre-Munsters was was dressing up like something that you like. Like, was that something that you did as a little kid? Did you like well, it? Yeah, Halloween. I mean, not at, not only at Halloween. I didn't like We're, dressing up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't, uh, I didn't, nobody wanted to be an actor at seven years old. It was, everybody's situation is different, but usually it's a happenstance, um, accidental scenario, unless maybe you have a, somebody in the business, which the closest thing I had to anybody in the movie business was my Uncle John had a ranch out in Newhall, which happened to be right next door to uh, the Spawn Ranch, because his wife's maiden name was Georgia Spawn. Her name was Spawn, so she was literally old man Spawn's daughter. But he supplied horses and Western props to, the studios and his cousin, uh, my cousin, second cousin removed was Zorro's stunt double. And that to me was the coolest thing in the world because Zorro for a kid in the 1958 to 59 and 60 was like the, oh, yeah. su the superhero. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're a little kid. You're in Gardena. You were just telling me that you grew up friends with the Cowsills, and and uh, it, it, show business was not in your family, I assume. No, just the just the perimeters. Um, what happened with me is my my mom's friend wanted to be mayor of Gardena, and my sister's father, who adopted me, Dave Lilly, owned. The casino, there used to be poker rooms down in Gardena before they were anywhere else in Los Angeles. Gardena oh, wow. was the city where everybody would come play poker. So he owned a couple of them, and the guy wanted his endorsement. So he thought, hmm, if I can get Dave Lilly to endorse my, my mayoral run, you know, maybe I can get elected. And his daughter, my sister Michelle, whose house I'm at, um, they decided to take her for a photo shoot to maybe put her into some print modeling and make Dave happy. While I was there... A photographer named Amos Carr, who at that time was doing all the big kid celebrities in Hollywood, took a few pictures of me. Afterwards. I know him. Okay, Amos Carr. I know Adrian. <laughs> he took yeah. some photos of me and he put the picture in his window on Hollywood Boulevard of this goofy picture with me with this hat on my head with my hands like this. And a director and a producer from 20th Century Fox were walking by and they were casting a little B movie called The Two Little Bears. And uh, it starred Eddie Albert and Jane Wyatt and Soupy Sales, Brenda Lee, Nancy Culp. And they were looking for the youngest. They had already cast one kid, but they were looking for a five-year-old. Well, I was seven, but I looked smaller. And they, they sought me out. And I went on an interview. Mary Grady was my agent. I had never – she wasn't my agent at the time. But right. she was, she was uh, Don Grady's mother from My Three Sons, Robbie. And she took me in, and I got that part. And I became her. She was she was my only agent my entire career. Never never changed oh. agents. We were best friends. And uh, from that movie, that six weeks work uh, during that, I I wound up picking up a another series, The Real McCoys. And then I picked up a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial. And one thing led to another. And I pretty much stayed fairly busy for the next twelve years. Okay, so how did your parents? Okay, your sister's older, I assume. No, younger. I'm the oldest. Young. Okay, so your sister's younger, so she was really young when she was going up for that thing. She was like three years old. Oh, my God. So your mother had to be kind of into it to, to let this happen, right? Your mother supported she, it? Yeah, she did. She liked the idea. She was a, a, a very uh, outgoing, fun person, and the people liked her. And I was, you know, I was seven. She was 25. So we were like, I was an old seven, and she was a young 25-year-old. <laughs> so... She wasn't a typical stage mom. And I told people that. I said, you know, a lot of times I think I probably got the job. If there's two kids and they both can do it and it's a team effort, there's a very good chance my mom not being being cute and, and, and affable, you know, and, and flirty of sorts. Where instead of being a pushy stage mom on the other side, they probably hired me because my mom was easier to be around. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. So did you was your sister jealous that you had well, she was very little, but yeah. Did it, did it ever bother her that you had this incredible success? The only thing that she's ever said to me was, do you know what it was like? Nobody knew my name until I was 13 years old. I was known <laughs> in school as Eddie Munster's sister. <laughs> so other than that, she was okay with it. Okay, so so you get that first movie, Soupy Sales. Wow, what was Soupy yeah. like? I loved Soupy Sales. He was the comic relief cop. And every time, the, the premise of the movie was we loved Halloween and we had our little bear suits on and we get a, we go up into the woods and we disappear and we run into these gypsies who give us a magic cream and when we put the magic cream on and we go to sleep we wake up as real bear cubs like little <laughs> so we're working with real bear cubs wow and, 
at Soupy Sales' job was when we would go out into the woods and we would wake up the next day as, as kids again, he would bring us back and hand us back to Eddie Albert. So the, the premise was the two little bears. Brenda Lee was 15 years old. She was the singing sensation. Wow. Um, she, had just, uh, she had just recorded Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. And uh, it was a fun shoot. It was a six-week shoot. Uh, I was a big fan of Father Knows Best. Jane White was playing my mom. Oh. Uh, Eddie Albert, you know, who doesn't like Eddie Albert? What was that? So what was he like as a, as a real person? Was he a drunk? I heard he was a drunk. Was he a drunk? I never saw him that way myself. I've, I've worked with a lot of people that were, but he, mm. he doesn't come to mind. I remember him because he had a very cool 1960 Porsche, a little bathtub Porsche, you know, little 356 that I loved. So he would always put my mom in the front seat and I'd jump in the back and he would drive us to lunch and stuff. So, Wow. Silver and red. Nice color combo. Very nice. So, so did you get it right away? Did, did, were you able to learn your lines? I mean, did you under, did you, did you get being an actor? The phone call came and it said, uh, I remember my mom answering the phone. It was Mary on the other end. Okay. They want to hire, they want Butch. He's got the part. My mom looks at me and she goes, you got the part. Do you want to go do a movie? And I said, well, uh, does that mean I don't have to go back to second grade? She goes, yeah. I go, I'm in. <laughs> And then early on, the funny part about that movie was my older brother, his name was Donnie Carter, and he was like an actor. And they gave me, my, my agent got me up higher billing, got me top billing over him. And I had never worked before. And he didn't, and he didn't like it. And he shoved me one day, and I, he shoved me into a post, and I knocked my tooth out. And I started crying. So finally, I just said, I stood up, I said, I quit. And they go, what? And I go, I'm not doing this anymore. I quit. So they, they go, well, you can't quit. I go, well, I'm not doing this anymore. I, you know, I'm going home. So the director, George W. George was his name. He took me to get some ice cream. The producer took the kid over, the other kid, Donnie, and told him if he ever touched me again, they'd kill him. So, but the, the idea was, is I wasn't a Hollywood kid. It was like, I'm done. I don't <laughs> like this. Take me home. And if they, they had never seen that kind of attitude before. Like, you can't quit. You're hired. So anyway, everything worked out okay. So what was it like being this little kid? I mean, I imagine at the beginning when you were getting these little things. Well, you did My Favorite Martian. Oh, my God. Ray Walston. What was that like? Bill Bixby's first job, his first series. That was I, I watched My Favorite Martian. It was one of the fun episodes, too, because I get to see the spaceship. And I see I'm a kid playing spaceman. And I'm pretending I'm from Mars. And then I peek in the window. And Uncle Martian goes, we have a visitor. And <laughs> I, see, I see a spaceship. And basically, we have these nice conversations with Ray about what it's like to be on Mars. And then Bill Bixby saves the day because I get stuck on the side of a hill. And my stunt double at seven years old turns out to be Felix Silla. And Felix obviously became Cousin It. And, and, and the twi- uh, uh, on Buck Rogers, he was the robot there. And he, anyway, he worked forever. And he's still alive. And he worked with me on, the, on the Lidsville. But Felix was my stunt double back in 1961. And we're still friends. That's absolutely crazy. Did you realize, okay, so now you're getting to be on these shows. I mean, you're on every show that I watched when I was a little kid. Bonanza, what was it like being on Bonanza? I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I liked, I wanted to be on Bonanza because I was really a big fan of the commercials. They all drove Chevrolets and Corvettes and stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I thought at the time it was like the number one show. And I did, I did two Bonanzas actually. And uh-huh. I didn't never. I never met Lauren Green, and I never met Pernell Roberts. My my particular episodes were with Little Joe and Haas, who happened to be my favorites anyway. So I was right. very happy. Everybody's I, favorite. 
Yeah. And I thought about it. I said, if I was ever going to stay in the business. And another thing was I never, never, ever planned on staying in the business past the age of 18. Early on, I knew that 18 was child protection laws ended and you could yeah. act, you had to work longer hours and this and that. So I was doing this as a temporary job to save up money so I could buy a race car when I turned 18. That was my plan. I knew I was making money and I knew it was going to come in handy someday. Uh, I turned down a lot of work that my mom wished I had done, but she never forced me because there would be interviews when I was in the middle of a football game or um, wanted to go ride my Stingray or my dirt bike, and that that took priority. So she would get a little frumpy, but she never made me do something I didn't want to do, and I just worked when I wanted to work. And luckily for me, I, I was lucky enough to compile a pretty good pretty good resume in 12 years. Um, yeah, you – I. I... I am shocked at all. I can't. You were like like on every show that I watched. So Ben Casey, what was Ben Casey like? Ben Casey, it was funny. He liked my mom. He, he was Ooh. flirting with he was flirting with my mom, and I I remember he gave her like I don't know twenty bucks and told her to go to lunch or something. But he he liked Patty, my mom. My mom was really attractive. My mom was a very very attractive woman. They used to in Hollywood Park in the old days, um, the racetrack. They used to have goose girls out in the middle of the of the, the lake. They were like really pretty girls that would be like do the do the uh, infield stuff. So when people would come around, they'd put like kind of like cheerleaders for horse racing. And my mom was a goose girl, and she was like Miss. Uh, she went to Inglewood High, I think, and she went with she went to school with Sonny Bono, Sam oh, wow. Bono, Sam Bono back then. And really, wrote, was that his name? He wrote in her yearbook. He goes to the cutest girl I never dated. <laughs> wow! So that was as close as we got, and uh, but you know it was it was it was fun. We I had a good childhood, I really did. And when I wasn't working at the studios, my mom married a professional baseball player when I was like ten years old. So what I team? got to go, the Angels. Wow! He came to the he, he came to the Angels in '61 during the expansion. He was a Yankee that they couldn't protect. The Yankees were really deep in outfielders with Maris and Mantle and everybody. So he came to the Angels, uh, had a really good rookie year, injured his shoulder, never quite recovered from it, uh, but played five years. And when I, uh, luckily for me, my brothers were babies. So when for me, I got to go to the ballpark and reap all the benefits of having a stepdad playing pro ball. And they all liked the fact that I was Eddie Munster. So I got to go in all the dugouts and the oh, locker God. rooms. Oh, God. So, yeah, you really had this charm. Okay, so the only other show that I noticed that I – we used to watch before you did the monsters, the real McCoy, uh -huh. Grand Kathy yep. Amos and the real McCoys. So, uh, so what was that set like? That was great. I'm going to show you real quickly a picture of me and my father and son game. What What was his name? Ken Hunt. Wow, a Yankee. He, and that's an what Angel. the he he wound up with the Washington Senators that became the Texas Rangers. Um, to answer your question, Walter Brennan. My mom actually educated me. I had seen Walter Brennan on a, a lot of westerns. I liked old westerns, mm -hmm. but I had no idea he had won three Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, he was a real powerhouse. Oh yeah. Uh, the the episodes that I did the year that I was on the show, they had gone off the air and it was resurrected on another network. I think it was on CBS and it came back on ABC. But they didn't have the family. They only had Pepina, Luke, and Amos. So they needed a love interest for Luke, Richard Crenna. And my mom's character inherited the farm next door, and I was her little boy. She was a widow. So with me riding my pony over to visit the McCoys, she would come over to track me down, and Luke would then you know, garner interest in her, and they that was the love romance. So I did eight episodes of the McCoys coming over to – Hang around with uh, with Amos and Luke. I loved Richard Crenna. Oh my God! 
See, and I remember, I remember him from Armist Brooks. Right. Yes, you know? Sure. Oh God. So, so what is it like being this little kid and walking inside your dream, like walking inside your television set, basically? You know, I never really thought much about it. I, I never really considered it to be special. Um, I kind of mm. honestly didn't tell anybody about what I was doing. I tried to tried to keep it under wraps the best I could because I just wanted to be accepted as a regular kid. I lived 25 miles away from the studio. I went in. I did my business. I came back to school. Um, I was usually the smallest guy in my class, and I just kind of thought that acting was kind of like a sissy job. I didn't really think it was like really, you know, something to – that would be important. So I kept it quiet. And, um, but I went about my business and I had my friends in Gardena and I had my, you know, I had my professional friends. And luckily for me, I was, um, I was good at what I did. I, I was always prepared and I didn't blow too many shots by not, you know, knowing my lines or missing my mark or being late and that kind of stuff. So when you're, when you're mentally older than your age and you're physically looking younger than your age, it's perfect for Hollywood. Right. Because they, they have the best of both worlds now. So I wound up working a lot. I was I did the first episode ever of General Hospital. I was Dr. Hardy's girlfriend's kid. I oh did a few God. I did about maybe twenty episodes before he moved on to another love interest. And then the McCoys and then the Munsters. And then I did next to Meredith McCray, I did the most episodes of My Three Sons as a guest star. She did like twelve and I did nine. And I was always Ernie's best friend. So I did a lot of my three sons because uh, I think it was convenient for the woman that was the, the casting director. I knew Don Grady, obviously. I was staying, I was staying at Don's house with Mary when, wow. my, mom, when my mom was with the, uh, the baseball player back east. So uh -huh. the, the woman that would take Stanley and Barry to work would come by and pick me up. And she would have three wards that she would have three kids working on the same show. And she had a good little racket going. She was, she was, she had three paychecks coming from the same show. And were you guys all, did you grow up being friends? No, no, I, I didn't know. I didn't know the uh, Livingstons. I, I knew Don because I was mm -hmm. actually staying at their house, mm -hmm. but uh, I met, I met uh, the Livingstons on the show and I became friends with Don, uh, Don Lynn, who was Doty in, mm -hmm. in when Beverly Garland came in. Uh, it was interesting to be around that set. It was a very interesting show because Fred McMurray, I don't know if a lot of people know this, his contract read, the only way he would do My Three Sons was to do all of his filming at once, all of his episodes at once. And then he would knock them out in about two months. So he would come in and they had every, and they had every script written for the, for the whole year, and they had every scene that he was in, Steve Douglas, and he would do them all, and then he would be off. And then you would come in and you would – I mean, you would work with him if he, you know, you're in the scene, but if after the fact they would have like you know, a ladder or something around that you would say, that's him – and you do your scenes, and that's how much power he had in Hollywood that he could he could wow. dictate those terms to do a series. And he was wow. a hell of a nice guy. I love the guy. And Freddie de Cordova directed most of mine, and you know he went on to direct the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. I got to meet Freddie, yes. So we had you know we had Hollywood royalty coming and going. Oh my God! Did you appreciate what you did? You appreciate what you were part of? That did you know how blessed you were? No. No. No, I didn't. And uh, had I, you know, it was, I grew up, I grew up without really a, a good, strong male father figure. I had, a, my mom got married several times and they were all nice guys, but there was really, I was pretty much on my own from a very early age. And, and I didn't really appreciate it because nobody really told me, 
it was kind of one of those things that, oh, he'll figure it out, which I did to a point. But I, uh, a few years ago, I was hanging around somebody and he was a school teacher and I, I have the greatest admiration for school teachers. And we were writing for about 90 minutes together. And I really admired him. I liked him. I liked his family. I liked his son. I liked his daughter. I liked the, where he lived. And all of a sudden it came to me that these kids of his were excelling because he was a great dad. I mean, it was really important to have a father figure to be there to guide you. And even though I was doing a lot of fun stuff and my mom tried her best, without that father figure, uh, it really, you know, you were pretty much out running amok. And you got to remember another thing. In the 60s, a lot of bad behavior was acceptable and people got away with a lot of stuff they shouldn't have. And then you double down with being in the, mo the movie business or the TV business and nobody ever wants to tell you no. You could pretty much, if you got the gene to go out and party, which I did, and I liked it, and I did it well, it was, uh, it was a very easy time to take the wrong path and not fulfill your, you know, your potential. So, okay, so I, I want to get to the partying thing, but before we get yeah. to the partying thing, when did you start getting partying? How old were you? Uh, the, the summer of uh, 1969 was a pivotal year for me. I turned 16 years old, August 2nd. My birthday's coming up. I'll be 67. Wow. Uh I was doing a movie with Wayne Newton in March of that year. Uh, oh a little guy named Teddy Quinn, who's still a friend of mine in Hollywood. His sister came to visit him on the set, and I just fell in love with her. Uh, she was just the cutest little blonde beauty you ever saw. So I pursued her, and we started dating. I was 15. She was 14. She lived on the top of Laurel Canyon up on Mulholland Drive, Woodward, Woodrow Wilson. So one thing led to another. I get my license August 2nd. I drive up. I'm spending a lot of time up in Hollywood with Diane. During that summer, that's the Manson summer. They also, I'm doing Marcus Welby the end of July and we're watching a man land on the moon. So we've got man, man landing on the moon. I did Marcus Welby with uh, Robert Young uh, and I'd worked with Jane White, so now I'm working with Robert Young on his Marcus Welby. One thing leads to another. And so I got my car, I'm in love, I'm you know fooling around, doing all the things of this. And I'm only 16, I look about 14. Brand new Mach 1. I'm into muscle cars. And then a friend of mine gets an interview for a movie. And he asked me to drive him to the interview. And I do. He goes into the interview. I'm sitting on the couch. as I, He comes out. Hall Bartlett was the gentleman's name. And he points at me and he goes, you're Butch Patrick. I said, yeah. And he goes, have you got a minute? I said, sure. And he goes, I'd like to come in. Would you come in and read for this part? I wound up getting the part that I took my friend up to read for oh. you know and three days later i'm in brazil with no teacher and no parent and i and a and a, and a and a very quick passport doing a movie for three months with third billing on a movie that was basically i got academy award nomination consideration for it what movie was it? it was called the sandpit generals and it was about a book called the capitaeus de area which was written by uh george amato down in brazil a very famous brazilian author and it was about the um, the illegitimate children that live on the streets down there that are bastard children of prostitutes and American sailors. And there's, and there's a real, on, real ongoing problem to, even to this day. So mm -hmm. he took a bunch of American actors down there. Kent Lane was his son. Tisha Sterling was the lead woman. Alejandro Ray was the father oh, wow. who had the church. So there's about four American lead people, and then the rest are all Brazilian supporting actors. Actually, we actually hired real generals from the from the streets and then we oh, wow. had a french camera crew and then we had a chinese caterer we were all over the place <laughs> so all my job was all i had to do was to show up in the morning and do my job and i did and after we were off work 
I met a bunch of kids from the Pan American School. I would hang out with the French guys when they went to the red light district. Um, I started smoking and drinking wildly, and I continued to do so when I came back home. I actually was bringing a bunch of stuff back with me, and I got cold feet in Rio de Janeiro and flushed it all down the toilet because I didn't want to get arrested coming through customs. But while I was down there, I was selling weed. I'm, now, I'm 16 years old. I'm, I'm also running an exchange in the lobby where I'm, I'm, I'm taking American money and giving back contos. So I have a, I have a currency exchange going, and I'm, and, and I'm going to the American ships, and I'm buying up all the Marlboros and smuggling them off the ship underneath M&Ms. So I've got cigarettes, currency, doing a movie, drinking like a fish and selling pot, all, all at 16. Wow. It, it and now, how did, what does your mother think is, how did she you wasn't there. Mother, yeah, but how did you get her to agree to let you to do this? Paul Bartlett convinced her that, you know, he, I would be taken care of and I, I had a hotel room right beneath his. And oh, by the way, he's, he was married to Rhonda Fleming. So Rhonda Fleming is down there with us. <laughs> So Hall and Rhonda are, are up above me. We're down doing this thing. The movie comes out, big billboard on um, Sunset Boulevard. I go see the, the screening of it. I go, wow, this is, this is going to elevate me out of the TV business into the movie business. So right. this is good. Even though I figured you know, I wasn't going to make a career out of it, being a movie star is a lot different from being you know, an episodic TV guy. So the movie basically goes to Moscow, wins grand prize for excellence, and everybody's oh. talking about it. I'm going up to New Year's Eve to visit Hall Bartlett and Rhonda at their, at their Bel Air Palace and mansion. Oh. And as I'm pulling through the gate, Rhonda jumps out of the bushes and says, oh, I'm so embarrassed. How much? Can you please give this to Hall? I go, why? Why don't you give it to him yourself? And she goes, no, I, I can't see him right now. So I, she gives me the papers. I walk in and hand it to him. It's divorce summons. She had me serve him. So oh. they get a divorce. And the movie, the, the movie, um, War of the Roses, yeah, with with Is that based Catholic, on them. Based on them, oh, they had my. this huge mansion. He had half the house. She had half the house. He had the heating. He had the heating controls in his house. In his half, they had oh. to go to court, and she got a court order to make him not freeze her out of her side of the house. She had his maid. She he had his butler. It was horrible. So what he did, he was so mad at her that he shelved the movie and never released it. Because she got half the rights of the movie and the uh, and the income it would generate, and he was so mad at her, he worked eleven years on this movie and he shelved it, never to be seen again. Wow. Yeah, that's how mad he was. I was wondering why I'd never heard of it. Yep. So, so your big shot to be this movie star, you you served the papers that did yourself in. I didn't know they were papers. I thought it was like a you know happy you know happy New Year card. It's like oh, he didn't. Wow. You know, obviously, he didn't blame me. And uh, so that was that was kind of how that went. And then right after that, I um, I was still working. You know, it was like I was turning eighteen, and Lidsville came along. And they reached out and they asked me to be a, do a Sid and Marty Croft show, which I actually turned them down three times. But Marty was very persistent. And then finally Sid came and picked me up in his Corvette. And we went and had lunch on Sunset Boulevard. And he was cool. And, and my friends at school, the Cow Sills, I asked them, I said, you know, they want me to do this series. And it's like really kiddie-like. And, you know, I kind of, the movie thing didn't work out. And I don't want to do a Saturday morning show. And they said, you're going to turn down work? And they go, what are you, stupid? I go, well, look at it this way. All your friends will be drunk and passed out on Saturday morning. Nobody will ever see it. Oh, my God. I didn't take my phone off the hook. Let's do that. I'm sorry about that. So so the councils were advising you, yeah, don't pass up work. Don't turn down money. Yeah. So I did. I went over to, to Paramount, and we did 11, uh, 11 weeks. I did 16 episodes. They had done 
this was the third series. They had done Pup and Stuff and the Bugaloos. This was Lidsville, Charles Nelson Riley. I was gonna say Charles Nelson Riley. How how was he to work with? He was a handful. But oh, he was really? fun. Yeah, he was fun. He was very talented. Um he used to complain a lot about the makeup, and I used to tell him, I go, You only got you only have makeup on for eleven weeks. I did it for two years. Quit crying. <laughs> and he'd come up to me and go, I love you, and I don't care who knows it. <laughs> did he kiss you? He said huh? the type that would kiss you. He would sneak up behind me and grab me like this and give me a big kiss in the cheek and say, I love you and I don't care who knows it. <laughs> okay, so let's let's go back. Before we move forward, let's go yeah. back a little and talk about the monsters because everybody okay. wants to know about the monsters. So how did you get how did you get that role? How did that happen? Okay. That role was actually offered to Bill Moomy. He turned it down. I was living yeah. in Illinois with my grandmother at the time, right after uh, right after the real McCoys. My mom went to live in the East Coast with Kenny Hunt, the ball player. I went with my grandma. Me and my grandma were really close, as was, it was as my sister was as well. So I went to live with my grandma. Kenny, uh, my mom had been divorced, and Kenny had never been married, and he was a Roman Catholic. So the Roman Catholics wanted us to jump through a bunch of hoops before he could marry us. And I was going to a parochial school back in this little town called Geneseo. Which was okay. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't mind it. I, we didn't have a nun. It was like a normal teacher thing. But I was going to a parochial school trying to appease the, the church. My mom was doing the same thing. And basically, they, they didn't allow them to get married. So they just lived in sin for like six years. So what happened was they cast, Bill, Bill Movie turns it down. A kid named Happy Durbin, Nate Happy Durbin, is cast as Eddie. With a woman named Joan Marshall as the mom, whose character name is Phoebe, not Lily. So And they, they shot it in color. And his take on the Eddie Munster character was very aggressive and angry and growling and snarling and this and that. So the network saw the pilot and said, yeah, we want the show, but we got to change the mom and the kid. So Mary Grady got wind of it being the good agent that she is. And she contacted them and said, I've got your kid. They go, we've looked at every kid in Hollywood. And they go, she goes, that's the problem. He's not in Hollywood. He's in Illinois. And they flew me out. My uncle picked me up at the airport, drove me to CBS Studio Center. I walked by Bob Barker and said hi. Went in to do my thing with Yvonne DiCarlo, and they hired us both on the spot. They probably had already hired her now that I think about it. But they hired me and told me, make arrangements to stay here. My family's on the East Coast. I, live, I moved in with my uncle in Gardena. We hired a woman to take me to work every day. And that's how I spent the next two years. And once a month, I would fly back east to visit my family. So... Wow, that so you were away from your family through that. Was that how was that for being a little kid and being away from your family? Not bad. I I, I was my my aunt and uncle were like substitute you know family for me, and I had my cousins with me, and it was fine. I didn't have a problem with that at all. Um, so no, I uh, I actually really enjoyed doing the show. It was a lot of fun, and um, I knew we I knew it was kind of something special. There was like we could feel that this was not a not a normal scenario, whether it was the makeup or whether it was the talent or whether it was the timing of the black and white period coming to an end and people flipping over to color. But it was the 60s. It was kind of like a perfect storm for music and for talent and for comedy. And there was a lot going on. And to be, when I, like, for instance, when my book was finished, and it's called Munster Memories, the editor said, what's your favorite memory? I go, well, my memory isn't really the Munsters. That was my job. My favorite memory was having free reign at Universal Studios for two years and going anywhere I wanted to go and never being told no. Because, I mean, I was friends with Ernie Borgnine and Tim Conway. I, that was my favorite destination was the Lagoon. Or if my uncle was supplying horses, I'd go up. They had Wagon Train. They had the Virginian. They had Laredo. They had several Westerns going on. And we had uh, Alfred Hitchcock going on. We had Jack Benny. 
Wow. Uh, there was a lot of stuff out at Universal, and, and they always there was always several movies being shot as well. And so you had like free reign, and you would you got to know everybody. Yeah, I would go explore, and uh, I knew how to get on and off a soundstage without blowing a shot, and I knew where I was allowed to go and where I wasn't allowed to go, and uh, you know, pretty much I'm in makeup, so they know I'm supposed to be there. <laughs> you, everybody must have gotten a kick out of you too, because it it was a very popular. Okay, so here's my here's an yeah. a question. Yeah. I, can, I seem to recall, I was a little girl at the time, I'm, two, I'm a year and a half younger than you, that I seem to recall that the Adams Family and the Munsters came out at the same time. Am I wrong? No, they came out at the same time. They came out, and I remember there were TV Guide covers for the two of you, and like I kind of decided before it even happened that I was a Munster, right? That was yeah. just the thing, right? And then Fred, so Fred Wynn just... So the cutest person ever on television, I think. Um, we were talking about this before we came on the air. Was he was he fun on set? Because he's so he's so cute. Well, you know, um, eleven and twelve years old is a pretty pivotal time in a kid's life. And mm -hmm. even though I wasn't with my family, Fred and Al and Yvonne, and for that matter, Pat and Beverly, the Marilyn Munster characters, mm -hmm. they all had. Beverly didn't, but Pat had kids my age, Yvonne had kids my age, and Fred and Al both had kids my age, so, mm -hmm. or a little older. But the thing was, is they all knew that I was kind of like by myself, and they um, they treated me with respect because I was doing a good job, but at the same time, they took the time to make sure that I wasn't going off the deep end and, you know, that I, that I wasn't missing out on, you know, um, my friends or or my family or whatever thing. So I learned a lot from these people. And, and as a substitute family, I probably actually learned more from them than I would have at home because Al was outgoing and took the time to throw a football and a Frisbee with me. Fred oh, was nice. working. Fred was working all the time. I mean, he was like always working. But when we had scenes together and we had father and son shows, he taught me a lot about the art of acting and a lot of quality time. So between the two of them, Al taught me about life. Uh, Fred taught me about the business. Yvonne, huge movie star. She had the presence bigger than both of them put together. Wow. She, so what, what was she like personally? She was, you know, she was a little bit like uh, Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. You know, <laughs> the movies haven't gotten small. I didn't get small. The movies did. But she <laughs> was a big, big major star. And she, was, yeah. she and she carried herself as such. At first, it was mm -hmm. a little bit of a problem. But once they all got on the same page. She did comedy great. She was a very strong person, and she made Lily Munster a very, a very strong household name. I don't think I could imagine the the show being done without her. No, absolutely not. And how about Meryl? I mean, it was so ironic that the one beautiful girl on the set dress normally is the one that everybody thinks is ugly. So, well, <laughs> well, that was the whole that was the whole funniness of the show. I mean, if 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 you if you read a script. The script wouldn't be funny if it was like, you know, Ward Cleaver or, you know, I mean, the, the antics of Fred and Al because of their obvious appearance is what made the normal situation funny that funnier than it would have been had anybody else been doing it. And then they had their they had their their comic timing down from 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 uh, Car 54. So their their oh, routines yeah. together were like world class stuff. And then, you know, you had basically the Marilyn Marilyn Monroe type. Marilyn Munster, the beauty who we found to be unattractive and and um, homely, and she keeps thinking that the reason guys are running away from her when they bring her home is because they don't like her until they get a look at the family and they run away. So it was just it was a very cute premise, adorable. Pre so how was it like in Hollywood back then 
with the Adams family in the month? Like, did you guys know each other? Did you go to events together? What was that like? No, the only the only connection I ever had between the two was Jackie Coogan visited us on the set one day. He was friends with Fred and Al, and he came over to say hi. They were on Friday nights. We were on Thursday nights. The unique factor about it was it's similar to like a Star Trek and a Lost in Space type of thing. Mm-hmm. You want you may have preferred one or the other, but you probably watched them both. Right. So I, do, I, I do believe that if, had we been on head-to-head, it might have been difficult, but because we weren't direct competition, I think we both benefited from each other's existence. I think so, too. And I watched both. I think I think yeah. we watched both. Most people did. But I think most people had a divide. It's like, are you a Rolling Stone or a Beatle? You know, like yeah. there are the Munster people and the Adams Family people when, you know, I ran. There are. Way. There definitely are. And, and we, we basically are, were pretty much, to this day and age, we're more popular. I think it's probably because we were just friendlier, you know, yeah. and we had a cooler set. You know, we had more fun with our set. Yeah, and the Adams, you know, they they had dark humor and they were very goth and this and that. And it was and it was cool. And John Aston, I mean, the first time I met John Aston was about seven or eight years ago at a big chiller convention and we posed for a photo op. You would have thought you would have thought we were the Beatles, man. I couldn't I couldn't believe how many people came out of the woodwork to see us together in a photo because we had never met, you know. Oh my god, it's it's Gomez Adams and Eddie Munster together. Well, did you ever meet Pugsley? Like your your not at the t- not at the time. I I met Ken as an adult, just like Lisa Loring. I met Ken through Paul Peterson. Uh, you know, we were all having issues, and we were all kind of you know in and out of problem problematic situations. Paul was trying to rein in the, as many and save as many kids as he could, uh, mm-hmm. doing wonderful work. But he had his hands full with a lot of us. I, well, so Paul came to the living room and did my women who write thing a few years ago. And I think he said, was it Rusty Hammer was that yes. was the start of. Yeah, right. When Rusty died, he decided that he had to step up and something had to be done to help kids because he uh, he felt that the industry was really, really a bad place for kids to uh, to grow up in. It's I guess it's a dangerous combination to be young and have all that money and everybody saying yes to you. Well, that that in itself is is a it's definitely a factor, but there are a lot of kids in the business that are just fine. You know, I really I really believe it's the industry really isn't. It's I have found in my in my opinion most of the problems, and I know Jay North and I know other kids that have had problems. Most of the problems have come from pushy family members who are trying to steer the kid one way, and the kid is torn between his family and the director. And a lot of times that you got to understand, like one of the things, for instance, when I went to work, my mom took me to work that left my sister having to take care of two little toddlers. So a lot of times people get resentful of the attention, not only are you getting at the studio, but the fact that it disrupts the other family members and it causes problems. And that's like whenever you think about getting into the business, it's just not one on one. It's like being it's like being a drug addict. You know, your drug use isn't just about you. It's about it's about who you affect. Okay, so let's talk. So, so the Munsters ends. You're a teenager. You're. Thir- I just turned thirteen. You turned thirteen. Mm-hmm. You you still do quite a bit of work after that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I still had race cars to buy. <laughs> it's okay. So, what, so the dream was to buy the race cars. Did you want to be a race car driver? Was that your thing? Yeah. What happened was, is when I was uh, when I went back into junior high school at seventh grade, I continued working. 
did one of my favorite shows. I was lucky enough to be on the Monkey's Christmas show. Okay, we got we got to talk about being on the Monkey because I'm friends okay. with, with Mickey and Mike and yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, for me, I I would never tell people in school what I was doing. It was it was absolutely never told them. Well, when I got that Monkey's episode, <laughs> I told every kid in school because the Monkey because I miss meeting the Beatles. The Beatles came to the Munster set. I missed them that day. So what? when the yeah, the, the Beatles, when they were doing the Hollywood Bowl in 64 or 5, uh, yeah. they, ca they came on the studio lot you know, for a tour. And obviously, they came to the Munster set, and Al Lewis told me about it. And I go, did you get me an autograph? No. <laughs> so it's like, could you have called me? I could have been here in an hour. Did you get me tickets to the Hollywood Bowl? No. <laughs> you know, it's like, thanks, big guy. So what happened was uh, the Monkees interview, I very rarely really put – on my race face for an interview. I take it. I do my best. If I got it, I got it. If I didn't, I didn't. Life goes on. This one right. I wanted. This one I wanted real bad. Uh, it, it reminded me when I wanted to get. I wanted to get a movie called Summer Magic to meet Haley Mills, and I didn't get it. And I was really pissed. <laughs> so I get the monkeys thing. I tell everybody in junior high school I'm going to be on the monkeys. So the neat part about this is the monkeys are huge. They're you know they're like they got the car, they got the music, they got the TV show. They were like they were they were as big as the Beatles at that time. Huge. You know, maybe maybe bigger in America. Right. So I got to spend a whole week with them. And um the episode was a Christmas episode which was really cool. Um they babysit me and I play the adult and they play the child like monkeys and I play the adult you know who's like they're trying to convince except for Mike. Mike's trying to convince me of the the meaning of Christmas and I spend three days working side by side with them as equals. And uh, Peter was probably my favorite at the time because he was the hippie. Uh, Davey was fun because he was little. Mike was kind of off doing his thing. He didn't really spend a lot of time with him, but Mickey was the crazy one. You know, yeah. Mickey was wacky, crazy, out of control. And it's funny when I watch it now, what I really enjoy about the episode is not so much that I was in it. I mean, that too, but I love the, at the end of it where they sing Rio Chiu acapella and uh -huh. they're all singing really good. And then what they do the last two minutes of the episode, what do they do? They introduce the guys behind the scenes. They break down the fourth wall and they introduce the cameraman and the, and the monkey girls and the makeup man. And so here you get a really honest feel what it was like and how these guys operated their show in a very fun, lighthearted way that was truly how they went about their day. And, and I thought it was very, very cool for America to see what they were all about because they were really nice guys. That's what I was going to ask you. Did you have, was it fun? It was genuinely oh, fun. Over the top fun. Over the top fun. I was, I was, couldn't have been happier. Have you seen them since? Did you ever see them oh, yeah. afterwards? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Peter and I did some stuff together uh, back in 80 with, when I had Eddie and the Monsters, we did some stuff in Chicago together. Um, he, you know, and I saw Peter a lot at, at car related events and music events. He, he was probably out there more than anybody. Mickey recently, I see a lot of him. I've, I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of Mickey. Um, Mike, not so much, uh, and Davey, I would see occasionally, but uh, mostly I was probably around Mickey and Peter the most, and now Mickey. And um, how much fun. So what was it like going back to school after you do the monkeys? <laughs> well, it, it, it couldn't have been any worse than after the Munsters, because when I went back to the, after the Munsters, it was, I was in the seventh grade, which is the first year of a junior high school. And the high school had, the junior high had 3,500 students. And it was a very big melting pot between Asian and Spanish and Mexican and, and Afro-American and, and the Caucasian. So there was a big melting pot school. Well, me, all I wanted to do was go mind my own business. But because you're Eddie Munster, there'd be three or 400 kids milling around at nutrition, not going to class. 
So the way they eliminated that problem was as they threw me out of school. What? And my, and my mom said, you have a choice. You can go back to school and let them bug you, or you can go into a private school. I go, I don't want to go into a private school. So I went back, threw me out again. So finally, my mom Wait, went down with me. What grounds are they throwing you out? Causing it, I was causing a disturbance. There was like 500 kids that weren't going to class. And that, the oh, reason wow. they weren't in class was because they were hanging around, you know, pointing fingers at me. So oh, finally, we went to a Mr. Brenner, who was the boys, boys vice principal. That's the guy you never wanted to be on the wrong side of. And I said, look, what do you want me to do? And he goes, well, he goes, first of all, I don't want you to go nutrition anymore. Okay, I can do that. Okay, we'll go to nutrition. So for a few weeks, I pretty much holed up in the, in my wood shop that was the that was the shop before nutrition and uh -huh. i would and, and then i would come out after nutrition go to my next class so as long as i wasn't you know hanging around in public and then and then after about a week it subsided and then i then i became friends with a couple ninth graders so then i had my muscle and um <laughs> and i and i had thick skin and, and and once you don't let them bother you it kind of it kind of subsided but to this day there's there's still it's still pretty common knowledge that my mom still lives in the same house so everybody knows that's Eddie Munster's house. And uh, uh, you'll go around and you'll visit some old friends. And I'll see pictures on the wall of me that I've signed 30, 40 years ago. But um, <laughs> me and Paul Peterson, probably the two famous guys out of uh, Gardena. But you didn't know him back then, did no, you? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. And he lived about a block and a half from my uncle. Did you watch uh, the Donna Reed show like yeah. everybody else? Sure. Yeah. yeah, I did. The Father Knows Best, Donna Reed show. Uh, Make room for daddy. Uh, oh yeah, that was all good stuff. The Beaver, you know. Oh, did, are you friends with Jerry Mathers? Did, did, yeah, did you the, the same producers did The Beaver, did The Munsters. So, uh, and I do see Jerry occasionally. I'm, I'm, I see Tony Dow a little bit more, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of the same kids that were guest stars on The Beaver that came over that were guest stars on The Munsters. Ken Osmond actually did my living room too. He, yeah, very sad. Yeah, like yeah he was a good guy. Ken was Ken was great. Um, it's funny the the extended alumni kind of a thing that you have being a kid actor from the 60s and that kind of a deal it's, it's funny i was uh, i was uh, with david copperfield he bought some munster collectibles and he contacted me on my phone and i was like david copperfield's calling my god so i answered i go you know i said i told him i said you know david i gotta tell you a million years i would have never expected to have your name pop up on my phone and uh, you know magically <laughs> so he and he, i went to vegas to see his show and i was supposed to see him the next night I'm there with Aerosmith, my friend's the lighting director, so I'm having a big Vegas weekend. So that night, I get a thing at Aerosmith. He goes, David Copperfield wants you to go to dinner tonight. And I go, well, okay, I guess you don't want to say no to him, Mr. Vegas. So we go out, and he is a big fan of 60s TV. I mean, and he took me to his house, which was not part of the program. So when I went to his house to see the Munster collectibles, I get to see the rest of this guy's, he's a serious collector. Not only magic stuff, but he's a big fan of 60s TV. So uh -huh. when he found out, when he found out his, here's what he did. He, we're sitting across, I'm over here, he's across the table and he's talking about old TV shows. And he goes, you know, I just bought the, uh, My Favorite Martian spaceship. I go, I did a My Favorite Martian. He goes, so I flipped me off. I go, and he goes, what else did you do? I go, um, I did two Mr. Eds. He goes, oh, he's, he's, he's jealous because this is what he grew up with. And when he was a right. kid, he loved, he loved all the TV shows. And the more I told him, the more shows I was on, the more jealous he would get. And then the next night, the next night I go to a show. He's great and wonderful. Plop, pops me down in front. And then we go to the museum after that. And then the next day, he took me to the hangar to, to see the uh, the My Favorite Martian spaceship with his jet there and this and that. So the guy's a, 
the guy's a wildly nice person and very, very cool guy. And he and I, he and I are, are very, very close friends now. It's pretty funny. Uh, I, I imagine that's happened quite a bit for you, where people who were huge fans of yours getting to meet you now uh, or later in life. It's, I'm sure you've become friends with a lot of those people. I'm guessing. Well, one of the one of the funny things I give an example of how it works sometimes is um, at the Forever Hollywood Cemetery every year they have a thing for um, the uh, Johnny Ramone and he died of prostate cancer and Linda his wife puts on a thing and the big thing is they show an Elvis movie and Priscilla attends so Slim Jim Phantom you may know from the Stray Cats um, yeah. is a friend of mine and he invited me to come out because I had prostate cancer and I'm a cancer survivor. So I what? went out there with my sister, who is keys to my castle behind me. She's got a company. So she wanted to go give Priscilla Presley a key. So we get out there, and she goes over and says, hi, my name is Michelle Lilly, and uh, you know my, my brother's Eddie Munster, and here's a key, and would it be possible to take a picture with you? Rose McGowan is right next to her. She goes, fuck, yeah, we'll take a picture with Eddie Munster. <laughs> wow. So that's how... People respond to the Munsters, and it's fun to be. They don't know me from Adam, but they really appreciate the character that I was lucky enough to play uh, half a century ago. Sorry about it, the profanity. It's really <laughs> no, no. This we fucking we fucking <laughs> here. But I had to give the emphasis on what she actually said. <laughs> it was perfect. It was perfect. So, so you've gotten to do a lot of things and do a lot of meet a lot of cool people, do a lot of cool things. I saw another credit on yours was "I Dream of Jeannie." What was Barbara Eden like? What was that set like? You know something? Actually, I did that thing, uh, my master of the author, where I, all my scenes were with Larry Hagman, and I never oh. saw her. I, I never saw her in her Jeannie outfit. I saw her on stage. <laughs> Michael and Sarah, her husband, they both walked in uh, to do something, and he was on Cochise, so I recognized him. And then uh, I see I see Barbara now quite often. I have a genie bottle. She signed it, and she remembers oh. me. And uh, I, I one of my favorite pictures. We were in Australia a couple of years ago, and her and Barbara Feldon were standing there. And I jumped between them, and I had their agent take a picture of Butch between Barbara's, a Barbara sandwich, Agent ninety nine and genie. Those are the fun things. Those are the fun things about being. Um, you know, there's some downside to it, but honestly, uh, it's about ninety nine percent good. So what's what's the downside to being Eddie Munster? You know, um, once in a while, people kind of just think that because you didn't continue on to do great things that you're somewhat of a has-been situation and this and that. And I look at it, I say, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But for me, you know, when I go out and I meet people and you literally are a friend of them because they grew up watching you and they right. enjoyed the show and you brought – especially when – their memories are with a grandparent who's no longer with them. And they have these fond memories of, of, of memories of old grandpa and me used to watch the show and he would laugh at Herman and they have these very fond memories. So you're part of a, you're, you're an interesting part of their life in a good way. And you bring a smile to their face. And if you're, you know, if you're a nice person and you meet nice people, well, you know, what bad can come of that? Literally. And I mean, literally in this day and age with all the social media and all the trolls and all the negativity in the world, I I would say one in a thousand times do I get any kind of grief, and it doesn't bother me because I got thick skin. But I'm surprised sometimes at how little little aggravation that show has brought to me. Very, very, very little. It was such a, as you said before, it it was bright and sunny and cheerful in its black and white darkness. But like as opposed to the Adams family, which had a much darker right. edge 
because the Adams family could be a little creepy and a little, if you're a little kid, it could be a little scary sometimes. Well, it was it because, you know, it was a Charles Adam dark humored uh, comic strip. You know, that's right. why that's why Wednesday had a, you know, a chopped off head doll and, you know, they crashed the trains and you know, it was it was it was dark where the Munsters was uh, was very much uh, leave it to beaver with makeup. Leave it to beaver. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good. That's a very good description of it. So, OK, before we finish the, the, the acting part of the thing. So doing The Simpsons, how was that for you? That was exciting. That I mean, in 1990, when I was down at spring break with Al Lewis, um, The Simpsons had just come out. And I mm -hmm. met some people down there from the show, and I said, man, I would really like to do a guest voice before it goes off the air because that would be a hell of a rap party. You know, all the guest voices, you got, you know, you got George Harrison and Mama McCartney and you got Mick Jagger. I mean, everybody was anybody's on The Simpsons. Right. Well, here we are 30 years later. <laughs> no rap party yet. Unbelievable. So in, this, in season 11, I get a call. Uh, it's about two, year 2000 and 1999. I think it was 1999. And I get a call. I'm in Atlanta. And they go, how would you like to be a – cartoon overbite on the Simpsons and be a guest voice. And I go, I'd, I would love to love to. So, you know, they don't pay a lot of money, but they send you nice first class tickets and they treat you really well. And, you know, you play, you know, you're playing large, living large. So I fly out, walk in, expecting to, to meet the crew, right? It's me, 17 microphones surrounding me and I'm up by myself. Aww. And it's like, what a letdown. But, you know, they give you a box full of goodies. It's like one of my tri prized possessions is my Simpsons jacket that, that's kind of like a Letterman's jacket. Red sleeves, black. Uh, it's got a lot of the uh, patches on it that you can't get anywhere. And anyway, you can't buy these. See? They only give right. them to people that are guest voices. So right. it's kind of like one of, my, one of my really cool go-to things when I want to go somewhere because people always love it. But the funny part about it was is they didn't really have a script yet. They just had this thing about I was going to be on Homer's shoulders and I was going to be he was going to be riding a unicycle through a bunch of uh, uh, mongoose and snakes. And I'm supposed to go, whoa, whoa. So the, the people that are with me, I can see them over there laughing at me because I'm doing this really stupid. Set. It kind of reminds me of the Phantom Tollbooth when we would go in and do voiceover work with the with the voiceover with Mel Blank and stuff. So I'm doing my voiceover work and it looks pretty silly, but we, we get through it and uh the funny part about it was the next day I'm going to the airport and they call me up. Hey, can you come back? And we forgot one word. I go, yeah, no problem. So I go back. They give me another check. They give me another bag of goodies. <laughs> the way I go. So, okay. Sounds like a good gig. It was. It uh, was. Did you ever meet Don Castellan? Did you ever meet any of them? Never. Nope. I was like, okay. All right. Nope. Not, not a one of them. They, I'm sure they'd be very happy to meet you too. Because you're uh, everything. <laughs> Everybody grew up with you. Everybody wants to meet you, of course. If, if you had to pick, I mean, literally, one of the, uh, one of the ironic things about, and we'll, we can get to like how I figured out a niche marketing thing with the Munsters is yeah. it's, it's very interesting because I told someone one time, um, the guy that did Billy Bob Teeth, it's a friend of mine, made, made millions, $50 million, huge, huge, sold 20 million of these Billy Bob Teeth. And I told him we were at a convention together. And he was right across from me. And I, and I knew the story of how he, how he made it and how he bought it and how he marketed it and everything. And I told him, I says, you know, I got a problem here. I go, I have a face. I'm a character that is globally known. Everybody in this planet knows Eddie Munster's face. Okay. They all, it's even in some dictionaries when they have a, a, definition, wow. of a, a definition of widow's peak. They put yeah. Eddie Munster's picture. In it. <laughs> this is the widow's peak. So I told him, I said, I need to figure out a way to market something that everybody knows. And I'm not looking to be like um, part of the company. I just want to be part of the marketing of a product because it would be me 
telling people to buy this because everybody knows Eddie Munster, but they don't know me. How do I, you know, what do I do and how do I turn this around? And he says, you know, that's an interesting dilemma you got there. So we, he and I have been thinking about it because it's such a brand and such a famous name and look and everybody knows the show. I mean, it's, it's one of the highest, um, priciest, most collectible stuff. If you go to like on eBay and you punch up Munster collectibles, uh -huh. oh, my, oh my God, there's thousands really? upon thousands of stuff. And price Somebody stuff. just said hair gel. You should do it for hair gel. Or for hair gel, yeah, something. Something. So I told them, I go, I got a really dilemma. I haven't really figured out a way to, to turn this into like gold yet, but I will. Um, okay, I have no doubt you will. And God, I'm just thinking of your little black and white outfit. I mean, there, there, there's, there has to be something. Uh, the hair gel thing is actually pretty funny. Yeah. And it's really uh, funny to say, um, if you want ugly, you know, look up what's her name, space in the dictionary thing. But you really are in the dictionary. That's yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the widow's so, yeah. peak, definitely. Oh, that's crazy. All right. So let's talk about some of the what happens after yeah. all of this is going on and life gets a little tough for you. So. Well, I, I found that. Um, first, I turned down uh, an opportunity to go on an interview and have the inside track to play in American Graffiti because okay, I didn't, want, I didn't, I didn't want to cut my hair. And, you know, you got to remember Led Zeppelin and the Doobie Brothers were all had hair like this. So I had hair like this. And George Lucas hadn't done Star Wars, so I didn't know the name. And he uh, presented me an opportunity to be uh, to be in a movie. Um, and I turned him down because I didn't want to cut my hair. And then about a year and a half later in Sacramento, I went and saw American Graffiti. And then I went out and beat my head against the wall for about an hour. And Tell said, them the part that you were going to oh, play. Oh, it was, it was Richard Dreyfuss's part. It was the Kurt, <laughs> Kurt, Kurt the writer. Um, oh and I told him politely that good luck with your movie. I wish you well, but no, I'm not cutting my hair for a little movie, a little low budget movie done in Modesto. Thank you very much. No. Now I'll tell you, I'll tell you another story though. Somebody in that movie even made a bigger mistake than me. Paul Lamatt, who played Big John Milner. How so? George, George wanted him for uh, Napoleon uh, uh, Sol Han Solo, and he turned him down for Star Wars. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, because he was too busy working with Vincent Bugliosi on Helter Skelter. Oh my god. So wow. he, Paul and I have some fun stories about that one. Oh, I bet you do. Yeah, yeah. Wow, the George Lucas regret. Uh. Yeah, everybody's got them. You know, it's, it's part of the deal. And so anyway, um yeah, it's uh that particular you got to tie in. You got to remember in 1971, 72, Lidsville music scene, Metro Media okay, Records. So how, did you, how did you segue from acting to music? What was that about? Uh, in 1972, Metro Media Records had let Bobby Sherman go, and they were looking for a David Cassidy-type replacement to go out on the road and pick up the slack. They called my agent for actually wanted to speak with Gary Grimes, who had started a movie called Summer of 42. Mm -hmm. My mom picks up the phone. She was working at Mary Grady's as well. And she convinced them that they should talk to me because I had just completed Lidsville. And I was more of a 16 magazine draw, teeny bop, you know, stuff than Gary Grimes. Being my mom, she did that. So <laughs> I went and met with them. And they had a group. They were managing a group. Dennis Gannon and uh, Vic Catella and Frank C. Slay had a company called Claridge Music. And they were handling Sugarloaf which was a pretty big band back in the day. Mm -hmm. Green-Eyed Lady, Don't Call Us, We'll Call You, blah, blah, blah. So they want me to sign a deal to do a, a record contract. I said, I don't sing. They go, it doesn't matter. 
I go, no, I really don't sing. They go, we'll, we'll lip sing it and we'll dub it and it'll be fine. And then they said, how much money did you make from acting? And I told them, they go, well, you'll make five times that doing this. And I said, okay, no I'm on board for a year. So Metro Media Records, I, become, I go on American Bandstand. I actually have the big interview over Loggins and Messina. I have the three-minute interview. They got the 30-second interview. So I headlined over Loggins and Messina. <laughs> uh, Dick Clark and I are talking. We go out on the road. We uh, do so-so. We do, we do the whole record deal. We spend all kinds of money. We go crazy. We have parties and, you know, girls and you know, the, whole, the whole rock and roll, sex, drugs, rock and roll is happening in the summer of 72. And Metro Media then lets me go because we didn't sell any records. Fine. I never knew. I didn't think we would. And it was really hard to perform when you don't have any talent. So <laughs> that was that. But everybody should be a rock star for a year. I recommend it highly. Wait, how then, did you do a whole show, though, Butch? Like, if you're, you're listening we, to the whole show? We never did, we never did a whole show. We never oh. got that far. Oh. Yeah, so this you was, go this, out and just do your hit song. Yeah. And it was, and the song was I O I O, which was actually it was a hit song by the Bee Gees in every country but America, off of the cucumber, the cucumber uh, castle record. So we had Bee Gees music and Sugarloaf, you know, music, Bee Gees lyrics, uh, Sugarloaf music, Metro Media record money, and it didn't fly because I couldn't sing and I wasn't a singer, and, and you know, and I and I I knew that would happen. It wasn't like it was a surprise. So when Millie Vanilli showed up, it was like you know, I I was doing this long before them. Except they were performing. I mean, they were like actually trying to pull it off. So then in 19, in the seventies, I continued to, you know, pretty much got out of the business, sabotaged that by smoking joints, going on interviews, not a good combination, you know, not wanting to go to Hollywood. I'd rather go to the beach. And it just, I didn't, my heart wasn't in it. And, you know, I was happy to, they were happy to see me go. And I was happy that I, that I wasn't going up there. So it was a mutual parting of the ways i didn't really burn a whole lot of bridges but i didn't help myself either had you saved money were you uh oh we're going to talk about what happened with the money so you'd save some money from your well i didn't save it the government saves it for you oh. they 25 percent and um so yeah when i went to the what happened was is when i was uh, 18 years old it was the last the vietnam war was still going on and they had a lottery system that if your birthday is pulled out of a hat and it's the it's low in the first hundred you're going to go to Vietnam. You're going to be inducted oh, yeah. and you're going to, you're going to be drafted. So mm -hmm. all the guys that are 18 are listening to the radio and my number comes up at number 41 and my friends comes up at number like 38, the two of us. And we go, shit, you know? So we both, you know, at that point in time, I had about six months before the induction center and I went to court because they had just, they had changed the voting law from 21 to 18 and we were now almost 19. So I went up and I petitioned the courts and got my money released uh, early wow. because I said, Hey, I'm going to go to war. I, I'm 18. I can vote. I can die. I need my money. And they pretty much allowed, they changed the law for other kids as well. So now anybody that was supposed to wait till 21, once they were 18, they could, they could get their hands on their money, which probably wasn't such a good idea because I did, I went and blew it all. And then what happened? I went up to the induction center and they found that I had injured my knee in a skiing accident so severely that I was classified one H where I didn't have to go. Wow. I didn't know that. And had I known that, I would have done things much differently. So really? um, that's kind of how it all went down. It was a it was a window from about the time I was 16, got my license, to the time I was about 19 or 20. That four or five year window was wide open, drag racing, leaving at the beach, surfing, smoking, snorting, everything that you could possibly, everything you talk about and see the 60s when you're watching TV and movies like the movie Blow with Johnny Depp. 
Uh-huh. Well, that was that. I'm basically in Manhattan Beach right now. That's where that movie took place. That's the real deal. And that's when I was out running around with gobs of money and fast cars and faster women, um, having a great time. And it's just unfortunately mentioned school in there. There was no school in there. I was going to Hollywood Professional School when I went to Brazil. When I was 16, I enrolled because public school wouldn't let me leave for three months and stay in the same grade. So I went up to the school where I met the cow sales and you give them $350 a semester and they give you work credit for whatever you're doing. And they pretty much allow their professional kids a lot of slack. So mm-hmm. my promise was when I went to Brazil that I would mail them back schoolwork. I never mm-hmm. mailed back a page, not one, <laughs> not one. And I blamed it on the mail system. I said, oh, a Brazilian mail system, man, <laughs> darn, how bad is that? So. I, got, I come back and... Uh, and they didn't have tutors for you on the set or anything? They didn't make you do anything? Not in Brazil, they don't. Nope. Uh-huh. Not at all. That was that was simply show up for work, and when you're off, you're off. And, and, let, and go out and have a good time, and I did. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and the funny thing is, I, they were paying me good money, so I had plenty of money, and then I was, you know, I was doing... I, I'd go on the American ships, and I'd buy cigarettes and bring them back and sell them, and then I would, I would also get money, and I would do money exchange for all the sailors from their American money to... Brazilian money. And then I found a cab driver that I asked for some weed and he gave me a gob tons of weed for $10. So now I'm, I'm selling weed and I'm exchanging money and I'm selling cigarettes while doing a movie in Brazil, all at the ripe old age of 16, looking 14. Um, there's some woman who's going crazy trying to get your attention. Her name is Leslie Awesome. And oh, she's yeah. saying, got snake on. I don't yeah, know what that snake means. rock. Snake rock's a good friend of mine. He's a musician friend. Good buddy. Okay, so Snake is on. So we're telling you that that your friends are watching. Okay, you. Snake and Leslie. So okay, so you end up having a hit though. You end up having whatever uh, happened to Eddie. Oh yeah. So how yeah. did that happen? That happened um, while I was incarcerated in 1980. Okay, wait, let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> okay. What's I that have, about? Uh, the the limo thing happened in 19. Let me see. The limo thing happened in 1990. But there was another little thing that happened. Uh, let me see. Where, where was this happened? I was, uh, let me see. I was 32. So, yeah, that, that was the 1990 thing. Yeah, it was 1990. Okay. So, I wound up going to do some weekends in Biscalou Center up in Alhambra. And while I was up there, I met a guy named uh, Paul Rebellis who lived in Hermosa Beach. And we became friends. And he introduced me to Reek Havoc, who was a childhood friend that I had lost, Hi, that I had lost touch with. Uh-huh. So we all hung out and we partied together for a few years. And then one thing led to another. And we met a guy named Phil Cohn, who was the bass player with uh, Stuart Copeland and Curved Air. And we all decided that MTV was a very cool thing. We should make a rock video of uh, a band. And since we didn't have a band, I wrote some lyrics to the Munsters theme and we updated it, did a video. I went to New York City with Phil and we snuck into the MTV Tower, went up like we had an appointment and basically convinced them that they should air this rock video that we did, even though we didn't have a record deal, which was a, they had never done that before. And from that airing of that video, the brass up there decided that, you know, there's probably a whole bunch of other people in the same boat as these guys are. We should uh, see what, you know, what's out there and maybe we can create a show, which they did. And they called it the basement tapes for unsigned talent to show their wares to let uh, let the world know about them. And I'd like to think that through that, we might have helped a few people jumpstart their careers. Quite a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah. Basement tapes was a pretty important thing that happened back mm-hmm. then. Okay, so now you get, so, okay, so you're not really acting anymore. You're doing a little bit of music. You have enough money to get you through because you got your money when you, 
So what do you, so you want to be a race car driver? What's the dream now? Well, I found out that the, the money was pretty much depleted. So there wasn't buying any money. There were no race car drive. No race cars <laughs> were going to be bought. And I was at the drag strip a lot and I knew all the drag racers and, you know, I had fast cars still and I, I had bought a lot of stuff. So I had a lot of possessions and slowly but surely the possessions would get sold off, you know, like everybody else does. And, and I just pretty much, my dad um, owned the, the casinos and I went to work in the gaming industry. I wasn't a big gambler and I found out that I didn't really like being around gamblers because when they lose, they get angry and they want to blame somebody and they usually blame the boss's son. <laughs> so I, uh, I did that for a while. I fulfilled my uh, probationary duties, got off probation, um, bought and sold cars, had a couple small businesses, just survived, you know, just, you know, did what I had to do. And so all through this, I imagine wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you're still Eddie Monster. I mean, people are still. Yeah, it was a pretty bleak time. Um, you know, uh, it, you know, it's like it's great when things are good and it's not so great when things are bad because it's sort of like gives the people the fuel to do the all has been situation, which is which is true. It is what it is. Had I, you know, I never look backwards because it's not part of my program. You know, we're in the woulda, coulda, shoulda years. It's not my forte. But had I thought it through, it's just because I didn't want to be an actor. That's fine. I didn't want to be a director either. If I didn't, you know, that was like more work. I was looking at, I was looking at less work. Yes. So where I missed the boat, what I should have done, and, and I love travel. Mm -hmm. I know how to read a script. I know how to get city hall. I've been in a lot of city halls, a lot of courts, and this and that. I should have been a location scout. Would have been yeah. a perfect job for me. Because I understand what they're looking for, and I know what's possible, what's feasible, and what's not feasible. And then who, how do you get to the right person to make it all happen? And that would have been a good job for me, in hindsight. What, what stops you from doing that now? Oh, well, first of all, I'm 67 years old, and I should be retiring. I've got a very good thing going on right now. What I've, what I've done yeah. is yeah. I'm a gearhead. I'm a member of a car club in New Jersey called Dead Man's Curve. They hired me about 15 years ago. We became friends. I actually wound up buying a Munster coach and a Dragula. I was lifelong friends with George Barris, the king of the customizers who did all the cars. I was actually buying and selling cars and sending them to Australia. Been to Australia several times. Um, but when I bought my Munster coach and Dragula, I found a niche marketing situation. So instead of like going to a convention and, you know, bringing Munster merchandise along or eight by tens to sell, which is fine. I got nothing, no problem with people that do that. But what I like doing is I have a 34 foot trailer that I used to carry two cars around in. And I would go to racetracks, drag strips, NASCAR, Indy racing league, car dealerships, um, sometimes comic cons, but places where people want to come out and see automotive stuff. That's my deal now. Uh -huh. And I have a lot of respect for people that do load-ins and load-outs now because I understand what it's like to be the first one there and the last one to leave. Because when you require a 40 by 80 foot spot, you have to get there early because they can't, you can't come in after people are set up. So I literally, the load, you know, Jackson Brown song, that's pretty much me. I mean, I, I'm there first and I'm out there last and I enjoy it very much. Uh, I talk about the Munsters, I meet people, but the bottom line is uh, I'm showing off my cars, which are really valuable and they're really likable. I do uh, parades. I drive people. Sometimes I'll put people in the car and 
I was the first guy down the the, uh, the Dream Cruise in Detroit a few years ago, 100,000 cars, and I was the lead car. So I'm right. doing stuff. I'm, I found a way to have a really cool little niche marketing uh, type of thing. That's excellent. All right, so let's talk about the how you got sober. What 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 happened? What uh, so that there was just a lot of availability of drugs, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, how did it go south for you? Well, it's fun for a while. And then, and honestly, it was fun for what one of the things is when I went into it'll be 10 years uh, Thanksgiving. So when I went in, today's drug addicts is a whole lot different than when I was a kid. It's back then when I was a kid, it was grab a pound of weed, sell 10, get six for free, and share it. It wasn't a money-making thing. It was, it was more of a break-even and share and get to do it again and do it again. It wasn't making money. Now, right. it, when it became a business and people started dealing it and shooting people and, and it became cutthroat, I pretty much phased out of the dealing business. You know, I didn't really want to do that. I mean, I used to drive up to the high school with my trunk loaded with weed, and I was like the pot guy in Hollywood, you know, in the, in the, in the early 70s. It was like – and it was, it was acceptable. Friend. Everybody knew, but you know, one one guy knew somebody did this, and one guy knew somebody did that, and I was the guy that had the weed. So, um, I would have been your very best friend. I was a marijuana addict. That was my drug. Not, the, not I'm not proud of it, but you know, I that's what it was. Um, so, what happened was, over the years, it became tougher and tougher. Uh, if I would have the money that I spent and the money that I didn't make because I was high and not going to work, you know, it was a double bill thing. It was like not only you're not making money, you're pretty much spending money. So I just uh, slowly phased decade to decade, drug to drug, situation to situation. And then finally, uh, I was about 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, a good friend of mine, my best man, had been sober about 10 years at that time. And I would call him once in a while and start easing myself into the process that, you know, I got to change something. This is not good. My, my, mo my mom's worried about me and, you know, this and that. And so I sort of pondered around it. And then I finally made the plunge because the guy that owned Oasis, his name is Jim A. He was the first guy on um, intervention. He was, the, he was the guy that they built the show intervention around. Oh, wow. And he quit the show when they tried to get somebody sober, drunk for the camera. Somebody showed up to come into intake and the cameras wanted him to be drunk and Jim wouldn't have nothing to do with it. So he basically said, I'm out of here. Good luck. Wow. I can't do that. That's wrong. So he quit. So what happened was, is when I was back East, I had been pretty much doing a lot of crack back then. It was it was pretty bad. And I still had money, though. For some reason, I had a big Halloween. I had a whole bunch of money still. So a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, said, you need to go into rehab. Why don't you do this? I found a place in California. The guy wants to come in. He really wants to take a child star and see if he can get him sober. And the criteria was this. His dad liked the Munsters. He knew I hadn't been in a rehab before, so it wasn't one of those merry-go-round situations right. where I was a professional rehabber and I'd go in for 30 days and get out. And right. number two, he, he would sponsor me. And it was a $35,000 sponsor. But he had a unique situation. It wasn't a 28-day program. It was a 90-day program with nine months worth of treatment crammed into 90 days. So when I started it, I was in meetings from 7 a.m. till 10 at night for 90 days. And then I got into sober living and the whole deal was that he told me, he goes, I don't think you're going to hang around because you know, you're not, you're not court ordered and you don't have any money invested in it. And there's no locks on the doors. He goes, I'm guessing you'll run. And he kind of pissed me off when he said that kind of, and I think he knew, I think he knew that. He th I think he was trying to get me to uh -huh. have a little bit of a, a little bit of an attitude towards him. So he and I, I looked around and I saw all these people giving him $35,000 and I thought it was a money scam. I thought immediately this guy's just in it for the money. You know, this is a, this is a, a hustle. 
So I wait, I make it through a few weeks and I decide I'm going to leave. And they talk me off the porch. No, stick around a few more weeks. Where are you going? I make it to a month. I make it to two months. About the third month, I go, you know, this isn't so, this isn't so tough. And then I started seeing and meeting all these other sober people with really serious time. And a lot of them were like people I respected, like Alice Cooper and rock stars and movie stars. And they had like big numbers. And it was like, you know, my biggest thing was I'm never going to have fun again. That was my mindset. Oh, my God, what am I going to do at New Year's Eve? What am I going to do at birthday parties? What am I going to do at weddings? You know, because I was always the first one there and the last one to get tossed out because I was always drunk. And I thought I'd never have fun again. I did it for 41 years. It's the only lifestyle I knew. So once I re-educated myself that you could have fun without it, easy peasy. And I'm so you, you haven't you haven't slipped since you got sober. Nope, nope. I and the funny part is I went in literally for alcoholism and everything else just fell into the, the coke, the snort, the straws. I never did needles. I never never injected anything with a needle. But everything else was pretty much on, and I haven't done anything because it just all kind of fell into the same deal. And um, and Jim told me, he says, you know, I've been open 22 years and I've helped 8,000 people. If I get you sober, you can help millions. So he goes, that's the bargain I'm making with you. You do what I say, you'll get sober, you'll help people. And I got to tell you, we were about, one of the funniest things that happened, we were, uh, I was about a year into it, and I'm still living in sober living in the property. And we went and did an intervention on the air of uh, Andy Dick. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I knew what Andy, a friend of the producer of the Andy Dick show said, we want to get Andy uh, into rehab, and I've seen what you've been doing. And he didn't know it, and we, we came, we showed up on his show as a guest. I was a guest, and I sat down next to him and started talking to him, and the two guys came in and grabbed him, and, and I took over the show for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and we did it. He stayed 72 days. We got I was going to say, he did, it didn't stay. Andy's yeah. actually, my, my husband used to be the producer of the Tom Green yeah. show, and Andy got Tom thrown off the air because he was so drunk when he yeah, did it, Tom. Yeah, he didn't. It, he got seventy-two. Uh, he got seventy-two days in and uh, left in the middle of the night. Didn't say thank you. Didn't say anything. You know, snuck out. And uh, and you know, we all I mean, we all know the stories with Andy Dick about other stuff too. So anyway, that's how it came about. I started helping other people. I started going to meetings. I lived in sober living for I a few years. Say, did you go to meetings? Yeah, yeah, I mm -hmm. did for a couple of years, and mm -hmm. that was part of the criteria. You had to do three meetings a week. Uh, mm -hmm. to make sure you stayed in the program. And the bottom line is my program is I don't sponsor people because I'm really not around, but I do um, help a lot of people that inquire about how to get started into a, into a sober lifestyle. That's what I'm pretty good at is steering them, especially parents that have kids. But the mm -hmm. difference between when I was then and now is this opiate thing is what's uh, out of control. You know, with all the opiate addiction, that's the biggest problem. So now... I'm working with a CBD company that specializes in uh, CBD opiate addiction to get to get them off of that, even though that was never a problem for me. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, do you do you partake of CBD and all that kind of stuff? No, I haven't. I have all the only thing I have. I have a thing called Calm Bomb, which helps me with my aches and pains in my knees and my elbows and stuff and muscle pull. I don't actually have it. If my sister loves it for anxiety and for sleep uh but as far as the actual taking of it no i haven't had to and i i would i mean it's okay i checked it out with my program and stuff and it's basically fine and dandy but i just don't do it because i'm kind of like ocd about stuff i don't really want to take anything unless i absolutely have to okay so speaking of ocd we're known as the covid crazies right here on this yeah. this little program here how how are you guys how are you and your family how are you dealing with the covid craziness 
Well, you know, luckily for me, I was out. I landed in, in California on the 13th. They closed down the state on the 16th. Mm. I um, was going through some issues that luckily for me, the week or two before I had gotten some stuff placed there, I didn't have to worry about anything. I had had a couple decent paydays. So I came out with a little bit of money to tide me over. Mm. Um, comfortable place, food, roof, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. And um, I pretty much social distance and do the best I can. But I've been I've actually been very lucky. I don't I don't I haven't I don't even know anybody that has it. I've been very lucky. I've met people that, that have lots of people that have it. But me directly, I, I, I haven't. Had, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lori Jacobson, John Provost's wife, had it. Yes, Lori Jacobson had it. Okay, so now what's your comfort level? Like, what, what are you willing to do and what, what won't you do in COVID? Well, I, I asked my sister since I'm staying at her house, it was okay to travel. And she said it was, it was. So I flew to Wisconsin for a car show about a month ago, open air. Uh, did you wear did you wear a mask and, yeah and- i wore a mask on the plane yeah that was that was mandatory mm-hmm. um i carry a mask with me where i go where i go i i don't wear it all the time i wear it when i have to go in and out of stores but uh, the rest of the time when i'm driving the car i don't i don't wear a mask while i'm driving by myself no mm-hmm. um it's funny you know having been in courts and stuff it's interesting for me to see the spin that uh, you know, the same facts presented in front of a prosecutor, and the same facts presented in front, in front of a defense attorney. It's amazing how two stories can be told with vastly different points of view. And I find myself to be, I pride myself into being, um, I'm not, you know, in an emotional state. I'm very, I'm very balanced and serene these days because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at, but I do understand um, it's problematic. It's, you know, it's, I would, I never in my wildest dreams would have ever thought, that this would, you know, that I would be observing what I'm observing. It's crazy. And so you, it doesn't scare you, though. It doesn't sound like it scares you. No, and I and it's funny. I'm I'm 67. I'm pre-diabetic. So so basically, I would be what might be considered to be uh, at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I have a pretty strong immune system, and I never really, really, really get sick. And you know why? Because all my life, I have been shaking hands and kissing babies and been in front of people. And I think I just got a very strong immune system from that over the years because I've just been around so many people that, uh, I mean, just germs are everywhere. And I just, I guess, I mean, I am washing my hands and I have hand sanitizer and I'm doing what's requested. And, but I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not too concerned. I honestly, I, I feel if I would get it, I would survive it. That's a great attitude to have. That's a very yeah, important. But I'm not looking for it either, you know. <laughs> So how many people are you living with in your sister's house? Just me and her. Just she lives by you. herself. Yeah. Okay. And so and so you go grocery shopping. You go. Yeah. I just how, shop. Norm, how normal is your life? Other. What do you do? You stay home most of the time. Or are you out and about? No, I stay home because there's nothing to go out and about for. Everything's okay. closed. Yeah. Uh, the movie. I miss the movies. I you know I, we she and I are both big movie fans, so we would go to the movies at least two or three times a week. So that's one. I don't. I, and I'll tell you another thing. One, one of the things that. The common sense, I don't get why certain places are closed and certain places are open. That, that to me, on a common sense level, I don't understand the logic behind a movie theater staying closed and something else being open. Because to me, social distancing is social distancing, and I can't understand why this is and this isn't. That's what well, frustrates me. My son runs a movie theater up here, and um, the, the concern is because it's inside. So mm-hmm. the things that are open are things that are outside. 
Yeah. And that's the deal is that when you're inside and there's load, it becomes more dangerous. I mean, yeah. what's going on with, with baseball? I mean, you put oh, yeah. in a locker room, yeah. boom, you know, it's everywhere. Yep. Yeah. I just, it's funny. My, my doctor who, um, actually I met in, in, in rehab. I mean, he wasn't in there for what I was in there, but I met him and he's like, he invented the insulin pan and the octopus for, um, for open wow. heart surgery. And he was like the head of one of the world health organizations. And he's been to South Africa and I had, I hadn't seen him in seven years. And we had a, we had a, a pretty good conversation. He's a, he's an oncologist by trade. Um, genius SC guy, you know, in fact, when I had my, um, prostate removed if it hadn't been for him getting me to his rock star ninja buddy doctors i'd be dead because i had a huge number with a very small mass and they actually thought it had gotten into my bones because the mass didn't set the mass didn't correlate to the numbers so they didn't tell me that until after the fact after the pathology report they go we really thought we'd lost you but luckily uh, you're cancer free and dr allen was 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 uh responsible for that so anyway um he had an, an interesting you know spin on it all and he was you know basically said no it's a real you know it's there it's real it's problematic and you know because i was under the impression that maybe they were like making it out to be more than it really was and he says no no you know and he says it's uh it's it's a serious situation but he goes the good news is he goes they should have a vaccine for it by october in his opinion well i sure hope that's true i hope so too that was your cancer uh I got it a year after I got sober, November twenty first, two thousand and ten, and I had my my prostate removed November tw- uh, September twenty third, two thousand eleven. So you've been cancer free a long time. It doesn't sound like. Did it scare you at the time? Because you seem pretty fearless about. No, it was. I'm not scared of that stuff. Uh, I basically thought it was ironic that after 40 years of abusing the crap out of my body, mm-hmm. that I'm almost sober a year, and I go up, and I'm going to die from. My ticket's going to get punched from cancer. That was my, and even my counselor said, this doesn't bother you. I go, why can't it bother me? I thought I'd be dead at 30. So I made it, I made it to like almost 60. So I'm, I figure I got an extra 27 years out of the deal. And then I wound up surviving it. And um, I'm in pretty good health. I feel good. And, you know, most people say I don't look 67. So not even close. And, you know, I got to let you go because I know you have another uh, appointment and I'm yeah. I honoring I, I, you. I, I, I got about five more minutes. You're good. But, uh, you know, I just uh, I just want to tell you, Butch, it's it's it's. It's emotional to meet you and to have you be so wonderfully normal. Um, it's so great to see you sober Thank and you. healthy and uh seemingly well adjusted to life and to what's come and what's gone in your life and you just have a wonderful attitude and it's just um it's just lovely to, to know you well you know the, the, one of the things that that worked for me is uh, when i went into sobriety um the biggest thing was you can't look behind you it's gone you're part of a master plan you're right where you're supposed to be and as long as you look forward and you're a survivor and you've got something to offer. I mean, I, I found that the biggest problem would be people have a tendency to look behind them and you can't change anything. It ain't, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing back there that you can change. All you can do is look forward and be happy that, you know, divine intervention came to me. And what happened to me, what he explained to me was he was once in a great while, because what happened to you, Patrick, was you had divine intervention. You had a burning bush experience to where all all um, cravings and, and desires to use were removed from you. They were, it was taken away from you. And he goes, and you don't know how lucky that is. Because I know a lot of people that they're this close all the time. 
And if they're not going to a meeting or if they're not going to pray, they're they're this close to relapsing. And for me, I'm blessed because it's the far. I mean, it's the farthest. I have people come up and say, "Do you mind if I drink around you? Do you mind if I?" No, I don't. The only thing I don't do is I I have a job in an alcohol related situation. I go with my job and I don't socialize afterwards. And I drink, you know, I'll have a glass where we'll have cranberry juice in it where it looks like a cocktail. So you look like you're socially acceptable and you're doing the thing and you don't hang around afterwards. And that's the only thing I do. Well, it's working for you. So, Butch, Thank where you. can people find you? Your fan page? Your How can people? Yeah. TheMonsters.com is easy to remember, and that will lead you to everything else. So if you go to Monsters.com, that has all my stores and all the information. But the official Monsters fan group is almost 25,000 people. We've done that in like a little over three years, and it's a really fun group. People really seem to enjoy it. And uh, the rest of it, you can find me on Instagram. And I don't do much Instagram and Twitter. I'm more of a Facebook person. But I am building up the others because I have to establish some things for, you know, the business. The business. <laughs> And show everybody your your monster mask. You have monster masks, don't you? Oh, my my assortment of monster masks that people have mailed me. Well, here we have Eddie and Eddie. Oh, here we are. Where, where am, I? There, am I? Is that me here? Oh, I'm the yeah. oh there we are. Eddie and Whoopi. There you Eddie and Whoopi. Oh, I love it. And then we got Eddie alone. And then we got Lily alone. And then we've got the monsters as a family. And then we've got the oh. banner with the ribbons of the monsters. Oh, but you're not selling any of this stuff. This is no. stuff that's been to you. No, yeah, we, we we did for a while, but the lady got overwhelmed and she she decided to stop doing it. I can't blame her. Well, Butch, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. We're worth waiting for. My, You're delightful. My, and if you should wind up needing somebody for Halloween, I'm your guy. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll remember that. Thank okay. You. But and, and thank you all out there for watching. And I'll see you next week with Liberty DeVito of... Uh, Billy Joel band and um, and keep your eye out for Butch because he's everywhere. Okie dokie. Bye bye.